you're dealing with any sort of significant entity, like West Farms, Beatry, this is how they operate. You know, this is not dirty small business people being nasty and hiding their assets. This is actually how a sensible, well thought out, well structured, well run business operates. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 396 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. How should you structure a multi-project business for asset protection? Let's say you're a builder with several construction projects or in hospitality with several restaurants and cafes or a retail chain with various locations or in agriculture with several enterprises. How should you structure your business so that creditors from one project or site can't attack another project? Or take all your cash or your tools that you own within the group. This is the question that Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney in Adelaide will discuss with you in this episode. It's linking into a conversation we had a while ago about structuring a business that has several projects. And these projects could be construction projects, it could be different restaurants, it could be different branches of a business, it could be different retail shops, where you have each project in a different company, and then you have a holding company, then you have a finance company, and then you also possibly have an HR company. Do you yeah. mind if I just quickly ask you to refresh my memory about this structure? Yeah, so the idea is that you create a separate legal entity or pot for various activities or functions within a group so that you can consciously choose what you're putting at risk in relation to various activities. So it's, it relies on the, you know, the concept of a company that it's limited liabilities so that if somebody's contracting with a particular company on its face, they have recourse to the assets of that company, but no more. So they can't have assets. They can't have recourse to the assets of shareholders and shouldn't really have recourse to the assets of directors other than in prescribed circumstances of which there are many but so that's that's it. that's the idea is that you you set up separate entities to carry on different activities and where it really comes into its fore is when different activities have a different risk profile so certainly acting as a treasury company or holding assets you know it has a different risk profile to carrying on a you know major construction project or you know licensing software uh, you know to 10,000 people so the idea is that you would have assets or low risk activities on in one entity and you would have the high risk or project related activities in another entity and even within sort of businesses which you would think would be a, a common business like say a consultancy that also had some software activities even then you might split that up between say a consulting or a solutions company which has the risk of people giving advice versus the sort of the, the revenue that comes from a, a relatively stable software program that might be a lower risk. Yeah. So it's basically whenever you do different things and these different things could be different restaurants or different retail shops or different activities, mm. whenever you have different risk profiles or even different creditors and you want to separate the creditors from each other or you want to separate the risk profiles from each other, then you ring fence each activity or each project or the different picture could also be that you create different buckets and you have one bucket for a certain project or a certain risk profile and you have another bucket for something else. Yeah. It's worth talking about 
what people we know why people have a problem with this. So people that the people will whinge and they'll say it's not fair that people you know create a company that doesn't have a lot of assets and then I contract with that and then re- I should have recourse to all of your assets. So that that's that's what somebody would say if they hit up against a, a wall that there were insufficient assets to meet their claim. And so I think we've got this tension between on the one hand entrepreneurs and business people saying I want to explicitly choose what assets I put at risk when I undertake a commercial activity. And then you've got another group of people, you know, consumers or the government that says, if you're silly enough to ever run a business, then basically everything is on the line, your house, all of the assets within all of your companies, because otherwise you're a naughty person and you know, you're protecting and hiding assets and that's, that's an antisocial thing to do. And you should be completely at risk for everything that happens if anybody deals with you. And both of those ideas or, or concepts have merit. And really what we need to do you know, as a society is work out where the line is between enabling entrepreneurs to protect, well, limit or consciously choose how much they risk versus protecting the consumer against people who basically hold out to the consumer that they have got substance but then at the end of the day you know there's only two dollars to to protect them and you know that's really the whole asset protection debate and and i don't think we think about that enough in the sense that we if we're advising business people we talk about you know how to protect assets and create different buckets and quarantine stuff and all that sort of thing and then at the other hand if we're you know government or we're you know consumer focused or employee focused it's all about you know, how do we bring in more and more rules that basically mean that entrepreneurs basically risk everything every time they do anything? Bit, bit of a rant, but I think I think it's important to understand that context because I think all of the debates and all of the discussion around asset protection has to take place within an understanding of what those parameters are. I will come back to that in a minute when we have the full structure on the table and then to ask which way the courts more likely yeah. fall. So we have these different buckets for, for different projects. And then we most likely have a finance or we might have a finance company that basically takes the cash out of all the businesses and then loans it back to the separate operating company so that if one operating company hits a wall, there is, yeah, there is basically no cash because that cash is offset by a liability to the finance company. Are these loans usually secured? They're probably unsecured, aren't they? They're usually unsecured. They really, they really have to be secured. They, they, often they're unsecured and then they're ineffective. They, they really need to be secured. And the way they would be secured is usually with a general security agreement or a charge, which is then registered. Um, the PPSR. PPSR. So, you know, when we get involved, when we look at a group from an uh, asset protection or structuring perspective, we often see that. There's been accounting for various intergroup loans and you know there might be a dividend from the operating company up to the holding company and then there might be a loan back in the books of the both entities of working capital back down to the uh, to the operating entities or to the project entities. But what you often don't see is the actual documentation that secures that loan such that if something happens in the operating entity and, a, and an administrator goes in, that the holding company is a secure creditor because if it's not, if it's just a general creditor, then it ranks alongside everybody else and it, it, it's, it's not very effective. Yeah. And when you say the holding company being a secured creditor, you mean the uh, finance company? The finance company, yeah. Yeah. The, the higher, it's higher up in the tree. Yeah. It's quite funny. 
<laughs> I kind of have to laugh, you know, how we as accountants, we book all these loans and backwards and forwards and we're really in our element. And then in the end, it's actually completely ineffective because we forgot the lawyer to take the lawyer along. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm going to be on your side on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Putting in place that so people often say, well, you know, this is all very complicated, but, um, you know, what we recommend in, in a lot of cases is just a a sort of an omnibus sort of funding and services agreement for a group, which covers the, puts in place loan facility agreements um, between the various entities that sign up to that agreement. It also puts in writing an agreement that the entities within the group are going to trade with each other, you know, on an arm's length basis, in the sense that you know one provides labour to another or whatever. There's really two benefits to that. One is the asset protection benefit because you've got a a written agreement and, and secured interest among the group, and that can also cover things like plant and equipment that's put on sort of lease or longer term use between various entities. The other thing it does, which is I think very important, is that it creates a basis for intergroup charging so that if, let's say, that the holding company gets a, a finance facility from a bank or something like that, and then on lends that among various group entities just through inter-entity charges and stuff over the year, in order for the interest on the, the primary facility from the bank to be deductible to the group, the finance entity or the holding entity has to charge corresponding interest to all the various entities within the group that are using those funds. And if there isn't a back-to-back -back charge that passes on that interest cost, then you'll the group overall loses that deductibility at the top. And that's something that the tax office is quite hot on. I know that, um, once again, your accountants are very good at doing all the journals to get all the intergroup loans you know, flowing around the place and recording, you know, oh, this is being paid for that, or this particular worker is employed in this company, but it's being used over in this company. The reality is, is if the second company isn't charged a fee for the use of that worker, then the, the wages of that worker in the first company aren't deductible to the first company. And so if you actually look at, you know, most people, even simple businesses have more than one entity in their group. Uh, and there's really a, a quite a high risk that of, of a lot of non-deductibility within within those corporate groups if the tax office wants to get you know quite forensic. And certainly in a couple of recent audits we've been involved in, they have got to that level of forensic um, you know inquiry where you know you can you can be exposed from a lot of lot of deductibility. That's a very good point. Can I come back to the PPSR because I struggle a little bit how to imagine that. I recently learned that all cars in Australia are actually in the PPSR. I, I didn't know that. But so, for example, if you want to know the engine number of your car and for some reason it's no longer there, you can just buy a record F off the PPSR and it will tell you all the details of your car. I found that quite amazing. But now looking at a, a business, how does it actually work? How do you put a charge onto something through the PPSR? Let's say the projects are restaurants. So let's say we have five companies and, and five and in each of these companies, you have a restaurant and now you have a finance company that loans money to a restaurant. And so it wants to secure this through a PPSR charge. What does that actually look like? Do we then write to the PPSR and say, please register 15 chairs and 10 tables and, and, and the um, fridge? And the, I mean, of course, the answer is no. What does it actually look like? Yeah, so it's it's very much how a bank would operate. So you need to have a document that records the security interest. In the old days, we used to call that a charge or a fixed and floating charge. But these days, we just call it a general security interest. Or, and, and we create that under a general security agreement, which is a relatively standard document that creates a charge from a legal perspective. And then that needs to be registered on the PPSR in the appropriate format. And there are a number of different 
security interests that can be registered on the PPSR. And the, the main one that um, you would use if you're just providing a general finance facility is what's called you know all uh, current and after cured prop- property. So basically, it means it's like a fixed and floating. It's it's anything you currently own and anything that's acquired after the date of the charge will be subject to that security. I see. What is it called? All current? That's called a PIMSI. After procured. Mental blank. It's, it basically means present and after acquired property. So it's it's sort of a, it's, it's all current and any property that you own at the time of granting the charge and any assets that acquired in the future after the time of granting that charge while, while it's still in place. So in our example, the restaurant would create this general security agreement that basically says whenever you loan us money, all of our assets are available to you to repay this loan, basically. Yeah. Right? Essentially called, sorry, it's called an all PAP, not a PIMSI. I've got my... Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, all PAP. I remember this now. My acronyms mixed up. Yeah, which is all present and after acquired property. So it's basically what we would call in the old days, showing my age, uh, you know, a fixed and floating charge. So it's going to be cover, you know, all of your property. The problem that you get into with putting in place that sort of a charge or security interest is that if you have third-party security, for example, from a bank, they will want to have a first-ranking charge of that nature over the top. Now, I don't know what your experience is, but mine is that a lot of small and medium-sized businesses don't actually have general facilities from banks, but many do. You know, many many would have an overdraft and they would be taking comprehensive security over your business. So you just need to understand that the security interest that you're granting to your bank is going to have first dibs on those assets to repay the bank facilities. And then your general security interest will then come after that as far as ranking and security. So you're not going to be able to defeat the bank. So to establish an all-pap, you basically just hand this document to PPSR or do you just tell the PPSR that you have this document? You register it on the register. So there's something that, I mean, we do as a service, but there's agents that do it as a service. Some accountants do it as a service. Some people do their own. So you yeah. basically just go onto the uh, PPSR website right. and you register that there's an OPAP for this company right. um, and you don't actually attach the document. You just say there is an OPAP for this company. That's my understanding because I'm... <laughs> yes. You don't actually that. do this. I've got minions that do that. <laughs> yes. But I, I, should, I should know the answer to that. My guess is that, once again, in the days when I used to do it, uh, we actually had to upload a copy of the security instrument, but I'm not too sure what the what the current rules yeah. are. Yeah. Okay. Good. So you mentioned this all pep, and you might upload the document or not. You know, right. we we leave that <laughs> should be clarified later. Exactly. <laughs> and so then, if you go to the bank uh, to get a business loan, then of course that would cause a problem because the bank will say, "Oh, hold on, you have an all pep there. We don't like that. We want to be first ranking." So then you have to change that. I assume you have to then go to the PPSI and say, "My all pep is second. Let the bank come first. That's right. Yeah. And often there's another type of security interest which is called a PIMSI, which is basically a security interest that relates to money that's used to purchase a specific asset. So, for example, a car. If you went to Toyota Finance, for example, they would have a security interest over that vehicle. And provided that, that they registered that security interest within a time frame of you purchasing that vehicle, so it's very pretty much immediately um, on or before sort of thing is what they tend to do, then that will rank ahead of your all pap automatically. So they don't actually have to worry about the priority of the of the existing security because you've used their finance to 
to purchase specific asset and they've taken security. It shouldn't benefit the all-pap holder, like the broad, the general security holder, because it's an asset that you wouldn't have to help that general security holder, bar for the fact that the additional finance was was provided by the asset financier, in this case, say Toyota Finance. So you you can often find it easier to get, say, a photocopier or a car or a piece of machinery if you're a farmer on a specific security against that or security interest against that asset versus the all pat, which is, you know, this this floating general all encompassing thing that sort of hangs out in the background. So there is PIMSI and there's all pap. PIMSI uh-huh. is for specific asset. All pap is for everything yep. that is not covered by a PIMSI. And a PIMSI is always ahead of an all pap. Well, if it's just in time, yeah, if it's perfected in time. Yes. For our structure, PIMSIs don't really matter so much because no. they basically don't play a role in our structure. But uh-huh. when you set up a finance company, then you very much should have an OPEP registered with the PPSR because if you don't, then the finance company doesn't really give you any additional protection. So you might as well not bother. I don't know if we're going to get into too far into the weeds, but let's we have a number of clients who are in the transport industry, for example, and they had separate companies that own all their rolling stock and their prime movers and that sort of stuff. Their finance entities, if you like, within their groups may take out a PIMSI if they bought a new you know, piece of rolling stock or, or um, you know, a prime mover or something like that. And they'll, often, they'll sometimes do that because they may also have a bank all-pap. So let's say they've got, you know, CBA's got an all-pap over their group. They want to buy a new piece of equipment and they want to provide their own funding for that and they want to have security to get that back if something goes wrong. They can actually structure a, a PIMSI for that particular piece of equipment and that would then rank in priority to their bank even so that's just something to I mean I don't know how, how much you want to get into the weeds but yeah no no it's helpful it's it's helpful because I was actually going to come back to an asset company you know that yeah. in addition a company that holds all the assets so it's good that you yeah. really touch on that now just quickly coming back to the um, finance company where would you put that usually you said usually between the holding and then all the different operating entities you know let's call them projects or is it usually at one level with projects you know, with the operator. In many instances, the default would be that the holding company and the finance company are the same because it's just it's just a one entity at the top that's not carrying on any trading risk. The more sophisticated groups will have a finance company out on the side. So it'll be a sister, it'll be a sister to the project. Yeah. 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 So it'll be sort of up the top and then you'd have the projects and the operating entities underneath. Yep. So either the finance company is the holding or otherwise, the finance company is a sister to the project. Yes. Now, before you ask Andrew about engaging employees through a separate HR or service company, before we talk about aggregation for payroll tax, about the effect of tax consolidations on asset protection, and the naming of silo entities, before we do any of that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant, and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. And then the HR company very often you have a separate HR company that holds 
all employees and then charges a fee for uh, providing employees to the different projects. I think that especially happens when employees jump from one project to another. For example, when you have five restaurants and they sometimes work in this or in that restaurant, hence then you know the the uh, HR company basically just pays them as usual and then on charges it based on their on their timesheet. I assume that H and then sorry and also one additional advantage of that is you just have one payroll, you just have one workers comp policy, you just have one fair work risk exposure, etc. And I assume, first question is, is that correct? And the second question is, I assume this HR company would then also be a sister company to the different project comes companies, correct? Once again, we've got this sort of thing out there in the ether about HR companies and I think, you know, Chris Corrigan and, you know, the Wharfie disputes and it being something that nasty business people use to defeat employees. And I think that we need to be clear that that's not what we're talking about because it does have a bit of a bad name. And I and I think these days, what I see more often is a group services company rather than an HR company. The purpose of that is really not to sort of create a, a $2 company that can't meet its employee obligations, but it's rather what you've just referred to, which is for a, a group that has activities um, and employees working across different locations or maybe providing common support to you know whether sort of partly owned franchise like you say restaurants and and uh, you know which might have different partners in them that sort of stuff they also tend to do other things they might procure um, centralized accounting services they might um, have central legal um, they might coordinate property assets for the group they might engage consultants, so marketing consultants, all those sort of people. So the con- that, that's really the concept that we see. And I think you're right. It, it is it is so that you can provide what's needed into each project or operating entity and make sure that you charge an appropriate amount for it and don't lose any deductions and all those sort of things. So yes, it is, it is common. There are many, what I would call the old-fashioned HR companies where people were just told for whatever reason they could set up a separate entity for employees and it would um, provide them with some sort of level of asset protection against the risks of employees. I think there's an element of that, but it's certainly it's certainly sort of not the Wild West as it, as it perhaps once was. Oh, the other thing that I think that you just need to be a little bit careful about there is that certain activities can have different rates for things like work cover and uh, those sort of things. So if you have a common entity providing all of staff across anything from like a workshop through to um, you know a different type of activity, you'll invariably subject yourself to the higher rates for all of your staff. So sometimes this can be a bit counterproductive. Um, there's also sometimes opportunities to split workforces genuinely for payroll tax purposes. And certainly having a group services company will mean that you're very much grouped for things like payroll tax. I'm not saying it's easy to split workforces for payroll tax purposes, but sometimes they're genuinely, you know, there's different ownerships and there's different activities and fundamentally different industries for a diversified business. So I don't think it's a case that if everybody who comes through my door would be put into a a separate HR services or group services company. It's very much a horses for courses sort of approach. It's very good that you mentioned payroll tax. I think the threshold is something like a million or so in New South Wales, correct? Yeah. I, I somehow yeah. have a million in my head and it was increased to a million uh, during COVID. Yeah. So as long as your payroll, your total wages or total compensation you pay is less than one million, then you don't have to worry about payroll tax. 
But of course, grouping it all together into one company, of course, gets you faster to a million than if you have it in each different entity. And I think it doesn't get aggregated if each project has different ownership, you know, different shareholding combinations. For example, if shareholder A owns 80% of one project, but only 10% of another project, then you are less likely to have your payroll aggregated. Is that correct? That's correct. Unless you then have shared services, which is sort of what we were talking about before, which they will then use to group based on the use of common employees across businesses that would otherwise not be grouped. So you just need to be a bit careful there that you're not inadvertently grouping yourself because you're sharing an employee across multiple businesses that would otherwise be separate. Are you saying that this general services company, if you have a general service company for accounting, for legal, for what else did you say? I can't read my own right. So you say that increases the risk of having your payroll pooled together, aggregated together? Yes. Ah, okay. Okay, so if you allocate your, if you don't do the HR bit and you allocate your employees to the different companies because you have different shareholdings and you want to avoid aggregation for payroll tax purposes, then you should also avoid this general service pooling because otherwise that general service pooling will pull you back into an aggregation. That's right, yep. But if for some reason this general service company works for us, then it would be a sister company to the other project companies, correct. correct? Yep. And then we come to the asset company you already touched on, if there are significant assets in the business. So, for example, if it's a, uh, if it's a construction business and there are a lot of very expensive cranes in the business, then, of course, you would put them into a separate asset company so that a creditor for one of the projects couldn't go after your $5 million crane, for example. Yes. And that asset company then, of course, would also be a sister company to the operating entities, correct? Yes, yeah. And I think there it's it's absolutely crucial that your interest, your ownership of that asset or the asset company's ownership of that asset is recognized on the PPSR because if that crane is being used by the operating entity on an extended period and then it then gets taken on site, et cetera, and either the client goes broke or your actual operating entity goes broke, then when the liquidator walks in, they will just take the crane, even though it's in a separate entity. The only thing that gives you any protection is is the PPSR registration that effectively perfects your title against other claimants. So that that's something that, once again, we see missed quite often. People will set up the structures. They may even put in place the lease. So, you, you know, document the fact that the asset is owned by company A and it's leased to company B, you know, on certain terms. But then they forget to perfect that protection by a PPSR registration. And that's that's fatal if a liquidator then comes in. And the other thing we see people do is that they forget to charge an appropriate rental charge. And that means that they lose the deductions for things like depreciation and stuff on the plant in the asset company because they're just letting the asset float around their group doing stuff and they're not actually recouping a relevant charge. That's all subject to this, you know, consolidation. So if if, if all the companies were consolidated for tax purposes, then then the inter-entity charges is no longer an issue. But more often than not, they don't consolidate in the, in the smaller, medium-sized end of the market. And um, you you really need to be careful that you're you're putting in place those charges to preserve those deductions. And if you consolidate for tax purposes, you don't put at risk this siloing you created. You know, by creating a different operating entity for each project, you yeah. try to silo risks. This 
silo is not put at risk by consolidating for tax purposes, correct? No, it's put at risk for tax purposes so that the tax obligations can then effectively be met by any assets throughout the group. So you do lose the segregation among entities for tax purposes, the liability, because it then becomes a group liability subject to tax sharing agreements and stuff, which hopefully you won't take me into (laughs) today. But for the rest of the world, tax consolidation doesn't remove the corporate wall. The corporate wall is still in place. And it's, I don't know if we're going to talk about it, but how you preserve the corporate wall with respect to the rest of the world is depends very much on the representations that you make to the rest of the world. So this is probably a good time to talk about this, which is when you are dealing with the public or your clients, if you misrepresent who they're dealing with or the assets that are available for their protection, for the, for your clients and customers' protection, then uh, the courts will look through the whole structure. So, you know, I often, well, not often, I advise our clients that their holding entity and their finance company should not have their trading name in the name of the company, for example. So if it was Andrea of Lawyers, I would then have, uh, you know, a holding company, which would be, you know, legal holdings or whatever it may be. So that there's no confusion that when somebody deals with the trading entity, that they're not also that the entity that holds the intellectual property or the ent- that has the the finance or whatever it may be or owns the trucks is a, is a, is not the same entity and the way that you tell the world that your trading company doesn't own your trucks plant equipment or whatever is through the PPSR so if somebody wanted to deal with your operating company and they wanted to know what sort of substance you had as an entity to trade with they could do a search of a public register which is the PPSR and they would see there that there's a charge against your your cranes for example and so you, as the customer, can't then say, oh, I thought that I was dealing with a company that owned all these cranes because clearly the, the, you've told the public that you don't own those cranes, that someone else, some other finance company owns those cranes. And I think that's a really important practical point is if you, you need to run your business with, with a, a mind uh, somewhat attuned to asset protection in the sense of, of making sure that the world understands what they're dealing with because the, the misrepresentation and the the failure to segregate in people's minds who they're dealing with will will undermine the whole strategy. So there are basically four measures or four defense walls for asset protection. One is creating this structure, you know, having a risk in different entities. Another one is registering charges on the PPSR. Another one is naming the other companies that are not operating entities very clearly differently. You just mentioned that the holding company should have a, a name that is quite different from the actual trading businesses. But I can imagine that the uh, general services company, the finance company, or that often is the holding, and the yeah. asset company should also have names that are very clearly different to the trading names, correct? That's right, yes. Yep. Often you'll see something like XYZ services, you know, or the asset entity with a, using the initials of the name, you know, BS something or other versus you know, Borderstone or, you know, like it's quite clear that there is, they're, they're a distinct legal entity that, that owns or is providing certain services distinct to the entity that the, that the public is dealing with. And then, the, sorry, just very quickly, the fourth, because I said four things yep. for asset protection. And then the fourth is to basically on charge any benefits you receive. So to pay for the employees, to pay for the crane you're using. And yes, that is important for deductibility of these charges that the asset company then, for example, incurs. But it's also, I understand, important 
to clearly show where the um, asset is sitting, correct? Yes, the asset is floating yeah. around and there's never any charge back to the asset company, then it puts the um, risk protection at risk. Yep. But if there's always a charge back to the asset or from the asset company to the operating company, then it's very clear that the crane is sitting within the asset company. Yep. But I interrupted you. You were going to say something different, which you hopefully haven't uh, forgotten. I think it's worth saying that this is how, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, BHP, everybody always uses BHP, but if you're dealing with any sort of significant entity, with West Farms, BHP, this is how they operate. You know, this is not, you know, dirty small business people being nasty and hiding their assets. This is actually how a sensible, well thought out, well structured, well run business operates. The very last question. We touched on it at the start. What are the courts actually doing? You know, at the very start, you described these two juxtapositions where you have two extreme views and you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm. Where are the courts going? Do they more agree with the position that an entrepreneur or a small business shouldn't put their assets, every asset they own on the line? Or are they more with, in, in quotation marks, government officials who think everything should be on the line? Where have the courts kind of been sitting in the past in their in their rulings? I think with corporate Structure. So where this ultimately, where the rubber hits the road is that a business will fail or it'll incur a liability that it can't meet with insurance or its existing assets and a liquidator is appointed to the, to the entity and then it's up to the liquidator to determine what assets are within that entity and are there any other assets within the groups that the liquidator can get their hands on. So that's where it tends to be looked at. So 99% of these issues are addressed as a practical consideration in the context of an insolvency. And for that reason, we don't see a lot from a court perspective as far as these um, the concepts of quarantining assets in various entities and those sort of things as a general rule, because it's it's very much a practical how much what funds does the the liquidator have to pursue certain things? Uh, are they going to pursue it against other group entities or are they going to pursue directors? Uh, all those sort of issues. I but I think the there is a higher level of respect, I think, for for the corporate entity within a insolvency in that context, rather than perhaps in the individual bankruptcy area where the rules seem to have gone a, a lot further against the, the business person. So I think there's still a respect for the separation of legal entities in, in the context of insolvencies. But where you do come unstuck, the, the very first one is lack of PPSR registration. And so the liquidator will literally lock the doors and whatever is in whatever legal area they can control, they will lock it down until somebody proves otherwise that someone else has a claim. So if all the all the cranes are sitting in the yard and the yard is operated by the operating company, all those cranes are locked up until somebody can prove those cranes are owned by someone else. And so that your first, all of the disputes, not all of them, a lot of the disputes are around PPSR registrations and the veracity of inter-entity general, uh, general security agreements, where the liquidator is saying, no, that doesn't, you've, you haven't registered it properly, your agreement's not executed properly, you haven't, it's a sham because you haven't really treated these like your own. Basically, these, these have just been operated by the operating entity. Uh, so that's really where all the things come unstuck in this sort of group structuring. And then where things can come unstuck from a liability perspective for things like somebody, you know, a group of people suing a particular business and then they find out that the operating entity doesn't have a lot of assets, they will then look to things like 
they'll join all the entities with the same name, for example, which may include the holding entity and the asset entity and the property entity. So they pass action to pipe approach is we're just going to sue everybody. You need to prove why we shouldn't think we were dealing with the top company. So that tends to be how these things work themselves out from a practical perspective when when it all goes bad. Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide. So today it was about asset protection silos that give you structural insurance. But this structural insurance, these asset protection silos, you split your business across. This is just one of several layers you wrap your business around to protect its assets. There are other possible layers you can use. And this is what we will talk about in the next episode, episode 397. We will talk about five different layers of asset protection. The obvious ones are contractual insurance. So, for example, for us as tax agents and accountants, it's professional indemnity insurance. Then, of course, you have the corporate veil when you operate out of a company. Then you have structural insurance that we discussed today using different silos for your business. You also, with these silos, of course, you set up cross claims registered in the PPSR or via a mortgage. Another possibility is to create an asset protection trust, which we will touch on next week, but then also cover more in episode 398. And last but not least, moving assets into other names so that the at-risk person has no assets. These are five possible layers you can use for your asset protection, which Andrew Andreev will discuss with you next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.